You're listening to the Inside the Mix podcast with your host, Mark Matthews. Hello and welcome to the Inside the Mix podcast. I'm Mark Matthews, your host, musician, producer, and mix and mastering engineer. You've come to the right place if you want to know more about your favorite synth music artists, music engineering and production, songwriting, and the music industry. I've been writing, producing, mixing, and mastering music for over 15 years, and I want to share what I've learned with you. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Inside the Mix podcast. And in this episode, I am very excited to welcome our guest today, Sunglasses Kid. So, just a bit of a bio here. So, Sunglasses Kid is a London-based producer who makes nostalgic vocal-driven pop and instrumentals inspired by the music, fashion, and films of the late 80s and early 90s. He's collaborated with artists and musicians including Ollie Ride, Jay Diggs, Zach Robinson, Tim Capello, yes, Megan McDuffie, and more. And he's going to share with us the story behind Sunglasses Kid. His experience as a self-taught musician, uh, approach to songwriting and content generation, and his thoughts and reflection on networking in the music industry. And I'm going to breathe now. Uh, Ed, uh, Sunglasses Kid, thanks for joining me. And how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, don't know how much I'll be able to reflect on networking in the music industry. I'm not even sure what the music industry is now. Anyway, like it's just a nebulous bunch of people on the internet. Yes, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, we'll, we'll delve into that in a bit. In a bit, but um, no, I love that. That's a great description. I'm going to use that as a quote um, from this. We haven't even. We're only a minute in, and I've got an, a quote already for this. Fantastic. So, what I'd like to start off with is um, life before the sunglasses, kids. So, you started making uh, music or releasing under this sort of moniker back in 2013, and you produced two albums, two EPs, and dozens of singles. I've been featured in commercials, uh, video games, and short films. But can you tell our audience a bit about your sort of musical life before Sunglasses Kid? Where, where did it all begin? Um, I mean, I, I grew up around music. My my mum was, a, well, was, she still is, a classically trained pianist, and she was a piano teacher, though I never received any like piano lessons from her i think she knew better than to try and teach me because i wasn't the kind of kid that took well to being told what to do um so i was i grew up around music and heard a lot of it in the house so it was literally you know would listen to children learning to play the piano underneath my bedroom and so i guess that was sort of around me a lot and then also i guess my mum was quite an influence in my life in that she she also was an early adopter of she bought like um like the Korg M1 workstation because she was, she was also doing songwriting and she wanted to be able to record it all in the box. And so she had that. So suddenly there was an M1 in the house, but my first kind of instrument, I suppose, arguably is it an instrument was the drums. So when I was like about 12 or 13, I um, decided I wanted to play the drums. And, um, and then I had a kind of, I suppose my kind of, big moment really was i mean this was this was in the early 90s and i was into i was drumming like everyone was to kind of rock and all the standard stuff you start doing with drums and nirvana were kind of big at that time and i was drumming along to things like nevermind and all that stuff and then uh, a boyfriend of my sister's at the time so a couple of years older than me was a chap who was a percussionist for the royal philharmonic and he when he was coming visiting my sister on the weekends he'd give me some drum lessons and he was really into like expanding my kind of knowledge of other drum styles and he was very into jazz and so he introduced me i have this kind of very vivid memory which i've told this story on other podcasts of him bringing over herbie hancock and the headhunters album on tape and teaching me to drum along to the that version of chameleon that is on that album which is a kind of got this very kind of funky bass line that goes boom, 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 bang, bang. and you've got like these offbeat drums 
So there was this moment where I suddenly like discovered the offbeat. And I think that sort of unlocked this interest for me in, in jazz and that sort of stuff as well. But it was all kind of happening at the same time as there was a massive like dance explosion in electronic music in the UK, like London and the UK was outputting a lot of, and Manchester, places like that. The UK, we were outputting a lot of dance music at that time as well. So I was just jumping around from, I, I listened to my like capital FM radio every day religiously. So I was, and they were always rerunning eighties pop and stuff like that. So I was around all that, around jazz, around dance music around the keyboards in the house and around drums. So I guess that's where it all sort of started. And I started thinking around trying to make music using the Korg and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, I was born in 81, so I wasn't around like loads of gear or computers or anything. That was all started coming in and around, I guess, the early noughties, really. It started really kind of being accessible to like people and, and I, again, I've, I've told this story. I was at, I've been, I went to film school and, and whilst I was at film school, there was a Norwegian guy called Ingmar who composed all his music to his own films. And he was, he was a real genius and he had a Korg Triton and he had, um, I can't remember what he used, something like Cubase or Cakewalk. Anyway, he hooked me up with a CD of, of software and, um, the only thing I could get to make anything, make a sound out of anything was a, was a really early version of Fruity Loops. So it was literally like Fruity Loops version 2.0 or something like that. So I was running Fruity Loops on a, whatever it was, something ridiculous, like a 486 PC at film school. And you, it didn't have a piano roll. I didn't have a keyboard. So it was all, I was making all this sample based stuff and I was getting very into like break beat and I was into kind of, I, I got really into like DJ Shadow and Uncle and those sort of acts that were combining kind of orchestral stuff. So it was sort of like the synthesis of everything that I was interested in. There was film music, all that. Um, and that, that's when what I then wanted to kind of go on to do. I had this kind of idea after uni that I was going to try and be a film composer and pursue that. And I, I took it very seriously, although I'm completely self-taught. So I was sort of trying to run before I could walk, jumping into orchestral music um, before I really knew the basics. And I actually kind of got somewhere with it a bit. And I had a kind of what I thought was a really, well, it was a really good chance and it didn't quite come to, come to pass to do work on a video game. And I kind of gave it all up a bit and had this massive hiatus from about like 2004 to about 2013, where I just decided to work a regular job. I had this kind of moment where I was like 25, 26, where I was just like, if I carry on fucking around trying to be a musician, I'm going to be this unemployable person who can't get another job because I've never, you know, I've just carried on trying to, you know, if I'm looking back, I'm like, I was 24, 25 going, oh, it's over. <laughs> like, and then the irony was when I stopped trying to give a sh and stopped giving a shit, something weird kind of happened with people taking an interest in what I was doing. But I, I genuinely, when I started sunglasses, kid wasn't trying to make something of it. I was, I did it as a kind of just as a, as a thing for fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way you put that there. Cause there's a number of um, artists that I've interviewed for the podcast. And it seems to be that I don't know what it is about this particular sort of style of music in particular, but a lot of them do come at it in their like thirties. I think there's a there's a number of producers I talk to because I'm in my 30s myself and I didn't start doing it until I was in my 30s. And I, I much like you, I was in a metal band and um, 
I didn't, I, you weren't in a metal band, but I was in a band doing music previously. And it got to the point where I was like, if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. And I, I want to go do X, Y, Z. So I'm going to knock it on the head for a bit and then come back to it and then come back to it because I enjoy it. And I, that's the reason I want to do it. Kind of like what you said there about why you started Sunglasses Kid, just to, for the enjoyment of it rather than trying to pursue some sort of goal. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess on the thirties thing. I mean, I'm, I'm actually technically now forty. I just turned forty last year. So, but I think, I think there's my theory, which I've actually then found articles by other people online echoing my theory, is that there's a sort of thirty year cycle of like of of interest in past decades. So, as everyone basically reaches the magic age of about thirty to thirty five, those people are the decision makers in all cultural institutions, they're the editors, they're the directors, they're the the music supervisors. They've reached that kind of peak career age or I mean, you know, it's not saying you have to be at the peak of your career at 35, but people are in that sort of area of their life. And that's also sort of maybe the age that people start getting nostalgic looking back at their childhood. So right now we're in the eighties cohort that's going to come off stream and the 90s will come on. I mean, you're already seeing that. I'm already seeing like Y2K nostalgia, people getting nostalgic about fucking 2003. <laughs> like, yeah. and then you're going, oh, yeah, it was like fucking over, it was like nearly like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think, but then there's something. So I think there's that like unique kind, there's that kind of 30 year cycle. And then there's also on top of that, I think there's a thing about the 80s being just an interesting, a uniquely interesting genre where it was the sudden explosion of a completely new sound. Like all synthesized sound was just totally new. It's like the guitar was there for the 50s, the 60s, it were, you know, goes back however long, far back the guitar goes. And then suddenly in the 80s, entirely new, never before heard palette of sounds. And given, put into the hands of, at the time, like incredibly skilled musicians who would all come out of jazz and funk and classical trained. So it was the, it was the, it was the infancy of that stuff that was so in, that made, that gave birth these really interesting sounds. Cause now we've bedded in with having computer music for like 30, 40 years. It's all got a bit more business as usual for everyone and, and everyone's got it in their hands. But right at the beginning of the 80s, you had like, these incredibly skilled musicians suddenly being given this whole new palette of sound to play with. So that's what I think it musically is interesting about the eighties and why I guess it appeals to me as a genre. Yeah, I would agree. And I think I've noticed with the nineties nostalgia, that's, as you mentioned there, that is slowly creeping in what with the aesthetic of it as well. I was chatting to my girlfriend the other day about, um, I saw something, some person on TV and I was like, that, that, that look itself there is very nineties and, even in my own productions, I'm, I've noticed in elements of the '90s now creeping in, in particular with sort of like the uh, the house style pianos and and these this sort of like these trance chords that I'm bringing in and stuff as well. And it's certainly creeping. I'd be intrigued to know what the noughties is going to look like when that comes around because I remember the noughties and I was big into new metal in the noughties. So that would be interesting and how that's perceived. I mean, it all depends on what everyone. What every it's part of an era people want to channel mm. with if they're going to do nostalgic music they're going to go back to an era it's like well which bit of the era because there's you know if you if you look at synthwave and say well it's it's channeling it's it's sort of weird because it's sort of channeling this very specific part of the 80s and also it's kind of invented this sound that didn't quite exist but is all feels like it did which is a sort of it's a hybrid of like 
film score because there's a lot of score influence in synthwave if you listen to like like i don't consider myself to make typical synthwave i make 80s inspired kind of pop um so i'm probably more in the synth pop kind of category than than t- the pure pure synthwave though everyone would argue about what is what is that genre but for me it's it's clearly taken an influence from the sounds of film scores from like Maroda and carpenter and people like that and then it's chucked in a bit of sort of house and electronic other kind of electronic music and it's it's kind of birthed this this sort of sound but it's like well that was one era of the 80s it's like people were still making jazz in the 80s yeah yeah people were still making hair metal rock rock in the 80s so it's it's like we're not just talking about any old 80s there's like this specific slice of the 80s that we've all decided to kind of channel a bit with with the synth well the synth wave genre has decided to channel that a bit i suppose having been doing this and releasing this music since 2013 and in, uh, as you mentioned having listened to your records a lot as well and I, I know there is that more synth pop element rather than sort of synth wave and it kind of and it, it fluctuates a bit do you think i'm only i've only been in really entrenched in in the synth realm as it were for the past two or three years do you think it's more popular now than it has been because it seems from my perspective very popular we'll be right back So I've got a hunch about a common struggle we all face, mastering. If you're an independent artist or music producer, you've probably encountered the frustration of masters that just don't hit the mark, right? They lack balance and refuse to play nicely across different devices and environments. Ever found yourself wondering, why don't my masters sound like my references? Perhaps you've spent countless hours attempting to master your tracks only to be unsatisfied with the results. Maybe you've tried every Silver Bullet plugin or even dabbled in AI. Or perhaps you're already working with an engineer, but you're eager to explore different possibilities. Well, here's the solution you've been searching for, Synth Music Mastering. I'm offering a game-changing opportunity with a one-time free test master for a limited time. Picture elevating your music with my unwavering commitment to quality and a personalized touch that you just don't get with the big mastering studios. The best part, it won't cost you a penny. Just submit your finished mix and let's see how we can transform your music together. Don't let mastering be a mystery any longer. Say goodbye to the frustration and step into a world of sonic excellence. Grab your free test master now, click the link in the episode description, or head over to synthmusicmastering.com. I mean, massive. I mean, when I, when I started making Sunglasses Kid was just a, this bit of fun I was having on SoundCloud. But like the, you know, the origin story that most people have, at least my <laughs> fuck generation, <laughs> this, kind of, this old far into synthwave now, like, I guess I'm, I'm considered like a second, maybe a second or third, depending on who you ask, generation of synthwave musician with like the first generation arguably being the sort of Valerie collective guys like college and um, electric youth and people like that. Right. And when that everyone has, you know, most of our, our my kind of gen has the same story of of talking about seeing the movie drive hearing the soundtrack getting inspired particularly kavinsky i think kavinsky's you know night call was the track and then going on a kind of rabbit hole and i think collectively across the planet all these bedroom producers thought they were the only person doing it and then they all found each other on on soundcloud but where i where i kind of tangented off was i was whilst I liked the kind of dark cinematic elements of like Kavinsky, 
I think I'd slightly had enough of spending all that time in a dark cinematic world because I'd had my fill of it and got irritated with it with film music or trying to make film music. And so I wanted to just do something for fun. And so what spoke to me was like the sound of um, Future Cop and Mitch Murder, who were the only real two people doing anything. Like Mitch Murder was the one who was like, suddenly I heard him and I was like, oh my God, this guy's got a little audience and his music's so like tongue in cheek and fun and silly and yet really well executed. And this is really inspiring to just see somebody going out on a limb doing something where they've taken a bit of a, a risk. And like, I, I think like I, I never, I, I, I always remember, I remember specifically saying the one thing I don't want to do is rip off Mitch murder. Cause I'll forever be the poor man's Mitch murder. So all I, what I did do was really sort of pay attention to like the atmosphere of what he was doing and the approach he was taking and just the kind of, like him being like a pace car for like giving permission to go, here's someone out there who has an audience of people who take him seriously. And yet what he's doing is very fun and silly and lighthearted. And, and I thought, Oh yeah, I want to do something like that. That's quite fun, but not, not exactly that. Cause he's got that covered. So I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I think the idea of taking a risk is, is brilliant. And um, I think in music taking risks is, I, I like that. And I think it's good for progression experimentation. Um, and I've noticed that in your music as well, listening to it, there are those there, you can hear the different the fun you're having with your music in particular as well, um, which we'll come on to in a bit when we when we delve into that because there's loads of loads of bits and pieces that I want to want to pick into. Um, but no, I totally agree with taking risks, and and um, it's something that I do, and it's something I sort of encourage on the podcast with regards to music as well. It's just I think you've I think you've got to kind of, I mean. <laughs> It, it's in the same Venn diagram as being original, taking risks. It's like the risk-free, the risk-free approach to making music is go study what works, copy it, put your own spin on it if you want. The and 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 I'm not saying that that doesn't work and that you can't end up by spinning it enough. You might end up coming out with something original that isn't a complete ripoff of the thing you were copying, but true originality is going to force you into the area where you are doing something when you don't know, you've never heard anyone else do it before. Yeah. Like I was doing, I'm not, I'm not like bigging myself up and saying I was being really original or amazing, but there were points with sunglasses kid where I was literally going, I don't have a contemporary reference for what I'm doing. I do not have another person apart from like, like I say, Mitch murder. Maybe there is no one else out there going here. It's only exists in the actual past. So I'm literally going out on a limb going, I know I like it. I hope someone else likes it. And, and, you know, one thing I did for a very brief period in my early twenties was stand up comedy. Oh, wow. And it's, it feels like the same. It has the same feeling of going, there's a point where you're going to walk out on the stage and go, I think this is funny. And I will find out if you all agree with me in the next 10 seconds. Yeah. And it's like that with, with music where you're just going, I, I like, I, I like the orc hit. I like that fucking sound from the eighties. I like the fucking slap bass or whatever. I like saxophone. And the thing is, once you've done it and pe if people then like it, then, then other people can come in afterwards going, it, oh, they've, they've kind of gone out and 
you know, scouted ahead for us and safely confirmed that, yes, you can apparently get away with a sax in a song. Like, or you can, I'm not saying I invented the sax, <laughs> putting saxes in songs or anything, but whatever that might be, you know, whatever that thing might be, you know, that's, that's always the way with people like sort of creating a genre or coming up with new ideas. It all seems easy and simple and obvious in hindsight. Yeah, I, th- I think one question I do have off the back of that then. So you mentioned there about taking, we mentioned about taking risks. And also it's kind of like you mentioned you could, you've got a formula. You could you could adopt the formula and you could paint by numbers for one of a better way of putting it and release that music. And going back to what you said previous to that as well with regards to the accessibility of music now, because you've got this whole sound palette before you on on a 13-inch laptop potentially. Do you think then that there there is a lot... I've asked this question to a number of um, artists, like because it is so accessible and because you can literally just, you could paint by numbers. Do you think it's quite hard to stand out as, as a new artist then in this, in this synth world? I mean, this is, this question gets asked a lot. Everyone and everyone feel, everyone sort of says there's too many fucking people at it. (laughs) You know, there's too many fuckers doing it. (laughs) I mean, I mean, and and there's there's kind of I think there's sort of it's a double edged sword that argument because on one hand you could say, well, back when there were far less people doing it, there was you know it was it was high, higher quality, so it was it was you could argue now it's quantity over quality, but I guess back then to have the sounds that I've got in any sunglasses kitchen, I'm pulling up a VST that's like a Fairlight. Right, a Fairlight was like 130 grand, and only five people in the world had it, like Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, and Jane Child. And so, on one hand, the gate is like there's not so the the entry the, the entry to what's it the barrier to entry is is far lower, and everyone can have a go at it. And but on the on the other hand, the barrier to entry is low and everyone can have a go at it. I guess I guess I guess the problem maybe is like when you when you start thinking about things like the statistics that like make you go, what the fuck is like twenty thousand songs a day are uploaded to a Spotify. And so this this idea and also that the primary kind of method for like marketing your brand, your mu- your music is now social media, whether you like it well now it's been social media for the last 10 years. Whether you like it or not you're in the attention game and everyone's now, now with TikTok and all the rest of it, it's gone exponential. So you're not just, you're not just, you're not just competing with other musicians. You're competing in the feed with fucking dogs, dances, (laughs) fail videos. Uh And there's four seconds maybe, (laughs) you know, just to catch someone's attention. On the other hand, I only joined TikTok the other week and one of my videos has had like 120,000 plays. Really? And gained me like 5,000 new followers when I had like 200 like the week I joined. Wow. What was the, what was the content? It was literally just me jamming on a piano. Um, I, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I kind of had a go like a lot of musicians trying to jump onto TikTok and went, got no engagement. Went, Fuck that. This is a load of bollocks. Yeah, and yeah. Gave up. And then I kind of went back to it because after reading a lot about organic reach and things like that. So... You know, on one hand, you could say, well, there's too many fucking people at it. But on the other hand, you could say, well, think about yourself. How far would you be getting with your music if you didn't have all these tools, these democratized tools in your hands? I couldn't, I wouldn't have got anywhere. I'd just be some guy going, oh, if I had 50 grand, 
I could buy all the equipment I need. And, you know, you're so on one hand, you can say TikTok, everyone's fucking doing it or music, everyone's fucking doing it. But on the other hand, you can say, including me. And I definitely couldn't, you couldn't be doing it without it. So in a way, the, the playing field's leveled just down to like, have you got a good idea or not? Is the song good? I mean, but then, but then also, you know, you could easily say, even good songs don't necessarily get get you there. I've heard plenty of talented people who get ignored, and plenty of talentless people who, you know. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you on that one, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of the fact that it is accessible with technology, and then you can, if you've got an idea, you can quickly sketch something out, or you can start somewhere, and it's accessible to the point where actually, if you think you know what, I fancy giving this music game a go. I fancy writing some music and I feel inspired. It's so accessible and it's easy to do. And also I find because there are so many people doing it, the, the actual community and the network that uh, I've established through the podcast, for example, is, is amazing because the amount of people doing it. But I think going back to what you said there about social media is, I think social media, as you said, rightly so, is is is, is playing a massive part of you breaking through the noise now. Because you could have, like you say, you could have, be an amazing musician and you could have this amazing song. And unfortunately, um, you sort of social media could be the avenue that you need to to get heard. Um, and I, I'm on TikTok myself, and I'm still experimenting with content to see what works. And I'm envious of the fact that you've managed to get that many views, and you've only been back on it for two weeks. I've been toiling away, and I'm still still at those like one thousand, two thousand if I'm lucky views. So um, fair play, man. I mean, TikTok is like I, I think every video is like role is like playing the lottery and i think they've rigged it they rigged it to an extent to feel like a bit like a lottery because and every and it's in their interest to sometimes make somebody you know hit famous because it keeps everyone coming back it's like a lottery if no one ever won the lottery then no one will play it so every so often you need someone to go massive and become a viral star for you to go oh that could be me it's like the machines at the arcade isn't it you see somebody win and you know they're rigged they're gonna pay out exactly yeah exactly um you know like I've got I've got two videos in since I've since doing that one one's had like fifty thousand and one has had one hundred and twenty thousand views, but then I've got loads of videos that aren't doing anything, and I think that's a known phenomenon. Even with TikTokers with like three four million followers, they can they're still putting out videos that then get no traction, and you're in this arms race. But I think the the, the bigger issue, the bigger thing that it's created is it's, it's made everyone have to become these kind of multi fastest individuals well, yeah. yeah like these kind of your marketer you're doing all these things and i mean already as musicians as independent musicians or electronic musicians we're already covering about 11 bases just in the production process alone from like producing but you're also mixing you might also be mastering you're composing you're doing like jobs that there would have been like a team of people working on that on a song in the, back in the you know back in the day and then also, not only are you doing that, now you're jumping on fucking Photoshop, you're graphic designing, you're marketing, you're copywriting, you're fucking making videos, you're editing. I mean, it's highly stressful for like people. I mean, that's, you know, you could argue that on one hand, the barrier to entry, you know, is is lower than ever. But then to cut through the noise, you've got to do that much more. And so I think you see the people who rise to the surface they're they're using one of usually about one of maybe three strategies number one strategy is some sort of an attention grabbing fucking low brow thing like they're being the lowest hanging fruit really isn't it or they're just doing something shock or whatever they're doing something then you've got people who are like 
usually trying to do something that's kind of funny or sketches or something like that. And then you've got people who are just trying to be as talented as they can and hoping that that gets cut through. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's crazy. I've I've mentioned this a few times, and because um, I've, I've on the previous podcast, I've mentioned that I've I've moved into the world of YouTube Shorts, and um, in in doing so, because I put this podcast on YouTube every week, and the 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 traction on that isn't as high as it is on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and whatnot. Um, but the the time invested in putting the video onto YouTube, there's quite a lot that goes into it because you've got the post production behind the interview, you've got the interview, then you've got the bits afterwards. But yeah, I'll put uh, put something on on YouTube Shorts, um, and it will, and it's just something silly like a reaction video that encompasses, I don't know, some Jean Claude Van Damme, for example, and it got seven thousand views in sort of like two hours. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> one of these podcast episodes that's an hour long and put all this effort in. I get like 10 views in a week. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult because we're, we're in this sort of weird world where we're in a kind of, we're in a sort of cognitive dissonance where on one hand you've got everyone's attention spans dropped down to four seconds and ev- and everyone has followed TikTok suit in going to short form video because no one's got any attention span. But on the other hand, we've seen the biggest boom ever in long form content led by fucking Joe Rogan and who led the way in doing four or five hour podcast chats and things like that that have have paved the way for this so there is an appetite for there's an appetite for that long form stuff as well um i think i feel like it's it's almost like right now it's created this there's no middle ground either you're making really engaging short punchy stuff that's just bang 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 this constant feed of shit or you're making intense long form if you sit in the middle it's not gonna work yeah you're uh, you're in the middle of the road and you're going to get run over. That's a really, really, in- <laughs> I like that. That's a really, really good way of putting it, actually. And it sort of echoes my experience of like putting out the short form stuff, which you, you can put together in a matter of five minutes. You know, it's just my phone pointed at a screen, and then I've got the longer format, which is the the, the video itself. And I think if I were to invest more time into the longer formats content with regards to the production and the production quality and stuff, it probably would get more traction and the SEO. But it's as you mentioned earlier, because we're multifaceted and we've got all these different hats that we're wearing, it's finding the time, man. Um, it's, it's, it's insane, which kind of, before I move on to the next bit, one bit, I, one question I did want to ask you, this is sort of going back a bit now to what you mentioned there about um, your, your music being sort of this, the way you've synthesized all these different genres and, and, and whatnot. You're, you're a self-taught musician. Do you think being self-taught has helped you in terms of your experimentation and the, the direction that you take your music in that you're not sort of rigidly sticking to the formulas that you would get given if you were a taught musician, if that makes sense? I think that really depends on what sort of level of tuition you've received. I think like if you've come from a classic, if you've been classically trained, I think that you can, there is the thing of getting hamstrung by all the rules and overthinking things. And, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say being self-taught. I think, I think this whole idea, I hear this argument a lot of like, yeah, man, yeah, I'll just break the rules, but (laughs) you know, to, uh, to like, you know, to coin, to use the, uh, the famous phrase, you got to know the rules to break the rules. There, there is a diff. There is a difference between um, knowing, like you're breaking a rule because you understand the rule. Fundamentally, you understand, like, so say, like, take like a simple 
thing which I won't even be able to articulate musically because I've just lack the musical vocab. But I'll, here's a go. I'll have a go at trying to explain it. Is if you've if you're creating suspension with a baseline, right? Dance music does it all the time. Classical music, everyone does it in different ways. So say you've got a three chord like progression and you're going to sustain the bass line that's under the, you've got a root bass note and you don't move that root bass note. It will immediately create suspension. Like it will create a sense of wanting that bass line to resolve along with the other three chords. But if you hold it, you know, you can build up suspension and you know, you can manipulate your listener into becoming suspenseful with it. And you know, any moment you can undo it. Now there's, there's arguably, that's arguably sort of breaking a rule of saying, well, the rules are the bass should move with the things, but then you go, but once you know those rules and you also know that to sustain that bass will create something. And because the listener knows the rules as well, even though the listener might not be able to articulate the rule, they subconsciously know the rule is the bass should move. And so when you have those like drops building up in trance music or whatever, it's because everyone universally in the, in the Western listener ear, right? They all know what the bass line should be doing. So they were waiting for that moment. And so this idea of like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, so I can just do whatever I want. It's like, <laughs> when you can do whatever you want, but it will sound like shit. You can't, you, you have to have some rules. You have to, you have to follow some rules. Like anything, like filmmaking, you're self-taught filmmaker, but you can't just, just put together arbitrary images. It will just be shit. Um, I mean, I do, I, I do think that, the, that going back to really briefly to that thing about the barrier to entry, may, maybe one of the issues now is it's it's there's a lot of sample based like music and it's very easy to to um rely on samples and i think sometimes that can be it to the detriment of you teaching yourself like well you don't need to learn anything because you can just get this three chord riff off um and so as if you've got music if you if the whole like music music if the audience's taste doesn't crave anything more than the three chord riff then you can get away with never having to learn anything. Like 20 years ago, songs weren't three chord riffs. That That's a new thing to just have a three chord. I mean, there were three chord riff songs, but a lot of songs had like verse, chorus, mid, late structures, right? So even if you could find a three great three chord sample, if you needed to progress beyond those three chords, you wouldn't know what you're doing if you were, if you had no musical knowledge you'd be going right i need another three chord sample that sounds good after i just need a whole fucking song just someone give me a whole song which they do you can you can download whole fucking song stems now which i've never quite understood i'm like well everyone's got access to the same thing it doesn't make sense you got anyway yeah i think what so i went off on a no 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 please do i like this it's great um and i think what you what you said there is i think when you have those three chords and then you realize i need something else that goes beyond that you probably come to the realization actually i should probably know a bit about how to write music well you can you can get this great idea starter it it would be like like again to use analogy if you were like wanted to be a novelist a bit like if they brought out a website where there were like story starters right and like download a pack of really cool opening fucking paragraphs and it was like great premises 
that we know we anyone who's tried writing anything knows there's a big fucking distance between a great premise and a fully realized story like the idea of you know what if what if uh, it's in the set of the future and you spies could steal each other's memories oh, that sounds really cool yeah what happens what's the plot well i don't i don't know what the plot is that's a lot of work and effort and that's like with songs getting an idea started is one thing getting it to the to the finish line is a completely different yeah beast. It, it it kind of um makes me think a bit about artificial intelligence and i read stories every now and again and i see bits and pieces about how um artificial intelligence is being used to write music and there was a piece i did listen to a piece of music that was written by artificial intelligence and it was very forgettable admittedly um but it'd be interesting to see how that it might already be there. I know. I know. For example, you can upload things like um, I'm not. I'm not knocking Lander or anything like that. But you can upload your music to these sites, and it uses machine learning. I'm. I believe to 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 master your music and other bits and pieces. So it'd be interesting to see how the, what the future holds in terms of songwriting with artificial intelligence. I mean, we've got we've got a kind of early the early kind of indicator of where create the creative world's going to get pulled by AI is this this dolly thing that everyone's trialing at the moment, this AI, you just write in a sentence and it will draw an image based on the sentence. This is, this is already all over the internet. It's, it's not fully accessible to everyone. So it seemed like beta, but you can, I saw one the other day that was like someone had typed in something like, um, ancient Roman battle from the view of a GoPro. And it had created this image that was like Roman centurions in central Rome all fighting, but all shot through like fisheye lenses as if someone was filming on a selfie stick. And people can are writing in all kinds of things. Like um, there's people love to write things about like the apocalypse. It's like, it's it, it, they're kind of slightly painterly oil painting-esque images, but you're already on the way to like people no longer needing artists. They'll just be like typing in a thing. So music can't be far behind, although I feel like music might be a harder nut for AI to crack. But yeah, I feel I feel like I think I think like two only two or three years ago I was thinking, well, AI might be able to crack a load of shit, but it's not gonna replace creative roles. And now I'm like a little bit less confident about that prediction. It's scary, isn't it? I think with the with I mean, quantum computing hasn't proliferated through everywhere yet. And um, I don't know if it'll be used in that particular context, but computing power and artificial intelligence and machine learning. I think you're right. I think, I mean, it depends what you want to do as a creative. I mean, I don't know if you'd call yourself a creative. If Imagine if you wanted to write a song, you're like, you know what? I need a song for my album. It needs to be, uh, I want it in a minor key or harmonic minor of some sort. It's, I want it to be sad. It's got to be about X, Y, Z and something just creates it for you. Quite a scary thought. I mean, on the other, on the other hand, it, it's like, well, if, if you have this AI that creates this music from sort of sentence struct sentence commands or instructions or directing or whatever, on one hand, that seems like brilliant. And let's imagine we're in a future now where I can just say, make a funky eighties pop song in the style of the system or something like that, and it spits it out, and it's exactly what I wanted. Unless the thing can do it again, exactly again and again and again, and and create my identity, the identity of the music will be the will be the AI's brand identity, not yours. It will have because when you see all these AI images, they all have the same distinctive look about them. So, on one hand, you might be going as an artist, "Oh shit, we're going to get replaced." But on the other hand, I'll be like, "But they all look the same, no matter who's generating it. They all have the same look and feel." So I feel there'll be a there'll be a time where 
will be will be kind of going, yeah, that sounds AI. That sounds that doesn't sound quite like like a there's the like I don't know. I think it's a weird frontier, and I don't care to project too much into the future. <laughs> it is. It's sort of like you move away from the not arguments, wrong word, but where individuals say, "Well, that's analog, that's digital," and you move into the realm of, "Well, that's 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 human." And that's AI. Very interesting. There's a website. This is total tangent now, but I don't know if you've seen it. You can go on there, and it's artificial intelligence has been used to create a human face that is totally unique. Well, and also, or, um, Adobe's got like voice synthesis stuff where it can take a not not much more than like thirty second sample of your voice. And um, once it's done that, it learns your voice, and then you could I could type an essay, and it would synthesize your voice and sound like you've spoken it. So we're in like a brave new world with. All that shit. I mean, it, all all of it is an evolution. It just becomes a more and more complicated evolution of the obsess- obsession we all have over art, which is: does the process matter? How you got from A to B? Do we care about that? Do like, does it matter if the person cheated, whether they used samples or whether they made it all themselves? Like how, like, like how much does that matter? How much does anyone care? I know I think as musicians, we all deeply care how someone's got there. We all feel like someone's cheating if they've used shortcuts or whatever. And then we get really annoyed when the audience doesn't know or give a shit. That's the thing is you want the audience to care. You want the fans to care and they don't know or give a shit how you got there. They're sometimes impressed if you're really overtly doing something clever with a guitar or you're really obviously out. When it comes to like electronic music where there are new, no new physical musicians, they don't know whether you are you spent 10 years learning how to play Neo Soul chord progressions, whether you downloaded Neo Soul chord progressions off a MIDI pack in five seconds. They, they don't know or give a shit. And that's the thing that's really annoying as a musician because you you feel like, well, surely hard work should be rewarded somewhere in this this you know equation. Surely this person's cheating. They should be at the back of the queue if they're going to download all their fucking sounds and I'm here making it all. doesn't work like that. Let's take a quick break from this episode so that I can tell you about a free resource that I made for you. It's a PDF checklist that describes what you need to do to properly prepare a mix for mastering. So you've done the hard work and you love your mix. Yet suitably preparing a mix for mastering is often overlooked by musicians, resulting in delayed sessions, excessive back and forth conversation and frustration on both parts. I want to help fix that. So if you want this free resource, just go to www.synthmusicmastering.com as this checklist will help and guide you to make the mastering process as smooth, transparent and exciting as possible. So again, the URL is www.synthmusicmastering.com for this free preparing a mix for mastering checklist let's get back to the episode but what my question was going to be what are your thoughts on that and obviously you just you've just sort of uh, mentioned those there and it is it's, it's that isn't it as creators we're very very sort of precious about the, the creative process and, and how our music's put together but i think fundamentally i know a lot of the music a lot of the consumers are probably just listening to it through the this might be a very sweeping statement, but listening to it through their phone. Um, and there's that argument that like, you're not listening to it how I perceive it to be reproduced using, using a phone speaker. Um, and it's, it's because, like you say, they don't really care. They just want something that sounds good. How it got from A to B doesn't really matter to them. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm anti, I'm not actually anti, I actually not, despite everything I've just said, anti like using samples. I, I think they have a place in like, Really recently, I've been diving into loads of late 90s, early noughties, like iconic sample libraries. 
and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm still massively into film music and I'm kind of at the moment, like low key obsessed with the 2001 soundtrack to Tomb Raider that was done by Graham Ravel. And he uses, I've discovered all the Spectrasonics samples that he used. And I was like going, oh my God, that is, I thought that was like a fully like original bit of composition by Ravel, but it's not, it's a sample, but he did the score in 10 days. So it's, so I don't, I, I still don't know what the exact backstory is that it was quite a legendary film composer called Michael Kamen who was attached and at the very last minute they, they, they got rid of him for some reason and Graham Ravel was brought on board to score this movie, this Hollywood movie in 10 days. And so, and it's, you know, it's a, I'm sure you've seen the film, but it's, you know, it's got all this kind of ethnic mystic kind of spiritual, magical kind of vibe to it. And so actually when you go to, when you say, right, I need to, I need to evoke a sense of place. Ideally, the quickest way to do this would be if I could just have like a fucking Duke or a Shakuhachi fucking flute or something. Um, I don't have time to go out and record that right now, find one of the world's best like Shakuhachi players. But what I do have are like these sample CD loops. So there's, you know, and he, he couldn't have got it done without samples. And sometimes, and I've no doubt that he might have even used some of those samples as the quick inspiration point. He's just there going, I don't have time to think. I need to do a cue every fucking hour for this. I need to write two and a half hours of music by the end of the week. He was like in America and they were they had people over in in London recording the orchestra and they're like overnight sending it via the highest speed internet they had in 2001. But for me, there's there's that moment of that's the kind of perfect symbiosis of where like tech is serving the the job and everyone's working kind of like I said, he's 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 he probably was using those samples as inspiration. And you you asked me like earlier about no, you shouldn't ask me earlier. You you maybe you were going to ask me about a track I did called Night Swim, and that was the only that's a track I've done. Well, I was doing it for a job. I was asked to write it for a game trailer. And I had like four days to write it, which now makes me feel really embarrassed because like Graham Revelle got a fucking film score done in 10. And I'm like, <laughs> oh shit, could I make a song in five days or something? But when you're under that pressure and you've got a really specific brief, there's a moment where you have to go into just some zone the, like the complete full intuition zone. You do not have time to go like back and second guess it and try out loads of ideas. You kind of almost just got to go first idea that vaguely starts to work intuitively. Fucking hit, go with it and run with it. That's um, that, that that brings us on to a nice segue uh, actually, to which was going to be my next question, which is about the creative process. Um, and I like the idea that you mentioned because it's something that comes up a lot in these in these interviews with regards to deadlines and goals and you give yourself four days and it's almost like you have that um you have those time pressures and those constraints that forces you to use what you have rather than spend that time ex experimenting would be nice but sometimes i don't know about you but some of the best stuff i've probably come up with has been when i've been given a brief or i've been given a, a set time and i've just got to get i've just got it my my door is a sketch pad and i'm going to get something down using what i have um so it kind of moves on nicely to the next question, which is when it does come to songwriting and your compositional process, how does that generally start? Um, do you uh, have an idea before you sit down or do you just sit down and think, right, I'm going to come up with something today? I, I think I generally 
start with a with a sort of vague, at least a vague kind of sense of the the the, the vibe, the genre, the the kind of what my what what kind of track might do I feel like making or want to make or what have you, and and sometimes I might if it's a hyper specific thing, I might have listened to some other piece of music and gone, Oh man, that's fucking brilliant. I want to write something a bit like that. So sometimes, sometimes I'm kind of not, not, not copying, but I am, in, I'm, I'm, I'm going in with a very, with a very kind of clear agenda for like, I want to make something that sounds like that. Um, and sometimes it could be, I'm, I'm a firm believer of improvisation as well. Sometimes you could just be noodling on, you know, the piano and improvising and something comes out of it where you're like, Oh shit, that's good. Fuck, I better record that. And then you might build something around it. So, um, but I think having that mentally, having that roadmap in your head before you set out going, at least if it's at least kind of, okay, I want to make a mid upbeat kind of cool, um, sultry 80s inspired synth pop track that might have a female vocal or something cool on it and i want it to sound a little bit like that track i just heard or this or have that atmosphere and and that sort of thing i think that that already gives you a lot of inf- like a lot of kind of next steps in what you're going to do um and largely i would i i generally start with a chord sequence i feel like there's kind of I sometimes if I if I have some very specific like rhythmic idea in my head, I might start with drums, but I, I gen- generally will put down like a very basic drum kit just so I'm not working to a click track. And then the next the thing that I will spend the most time on before I move on will be chord sequences because for me they're like the foundations and it's it's too tempting. To, to move away from chord sequences that you haven't got nailed and start fucking around with drums or ear candy and things like that, hoping you're going to get, that's going to save you from having not really come up with a song. But it depends on what, it depends on what you're making. Cause most of what I do is, is are like song songs. I make instrumental stuff as well, but they're, they're songs with verses and pre-choruses and choruses and middle eights and things like that. Um, and you, and like, so you, it's not, it's, it's very much about the chord sequences. And so, you know, you could, there's an amount of times I've got a great, like three chord idea and I'm going, this is really, oh, this is great. I cannot work out where the fuck this goes after that. And that's kind of everything. All you, and it comes back to what I said before, all you've got is a great movie premise. You've got a great opening scene. But what are you, what is happening? What is the actual plot? Where is this thing going? You need at least like for a great pop song. I mean, well, I say now for, nowadays for a great pop song, you need three chords. But if you're going to go beyond that, really, if you can have a song that comprises of at least three different chord sequences that are all equally as catchy, that's when you, that's when you can, you know, that's when you've got something. Although, some songs I've written that have been popular have been literally three chords. <laughs> Having just said that, <laughs> no, I think that's really good advice. I think starting with the chords because um, I follow a similar process myself, um, and I've, I've fallen into the trap previously where I've got uh, two or three chords, or not even a chord. Sometimes it's a bass line, 
And then I think, right, I'll get some drums on this. And I spend hours just come up with these elaborate drum patterns. Um, and admittedly, I'm not a drummer, not that that's an excuse, but drum programming is not um, a friend of mine a lot of the time. Um, so I try not to spend too much time on it. But yeah, I've, I've done that. And I think you're right in, in chord progressions and that. So w- w- when you do have a chord progression, and you mentioned there about the fact that you're stuck for an idea, how do you overcome that? Or do you just sort of put it to the side, move on to something else and come back to it? I mean, just, just to say, pause for a moment and say, starting with the bass lines, not, I mean, I've actually, I mean, I have it on, I've had conversations with my mum, going back to being a classically trained musician, where she's often actually emphasised actually starting with a bass line isn't a bad way to go because, and even starting, and starting with a melody is also a great way to go because if you've got a great bass line, it kind of dictates what the chord sequence will be. So the chord sequence will emerge from the bass line. Uh, then you're still into the next, if you're planning to do anything more than a three or two chord wonder, then you're like, okay, do I have to come up with now another really fucking good baseline to progress it to the next bit? Or now I've got to come up with the next bit. But I, I guess um, that's again where some of the, the kind of rules and things can come into play where um I suppose it would depend. It depends on what that starting chord progression is, and I think sometimes, like a what feels like a really instinctively like hooky chord progression, you can mentally think this is the verse, and then you suddenly realise actually this would be better as the chorus, and I need to come up with something less exciting almost <laughs> to be my verse to build up to this chorus and kind of go okay, so this is the main, this is the main bit. So now I need to think of what would precede this, what would be coming before it that would build up to it. And I guess there are like some rules around if you've got a chord sequence that's going, no name chords, let's just call them numbers, one, two, three. You know that a chord sequence following it, three, two, one, wouldn't work because you have chords three and three next to each other. So there wouldn't be the satisfying moving from one chord to another, which are things that I can hear when people I was saying to you before we started this chat about when people share their music online and ask for feedback in like forums with producers and things, people will often ask that question of like, why aren't my transitions hitting or, and everyone feels in like there's a there's a, there's the answer must lie somewhere in the ma- magical mystery of the mix and not in like yes there's song there's sound choices yes you could jazz it up with white noise and effects and maybe you could make a better drum feel and there's lots of things to do with the mix that could be improved but strip all that back fundamentally the reason that this, this isn't landing is because you've got two chord progressions going next to each other that aren't working, or, or basically you've never got out of that one chord progression. So you want it to kind of go somewhere, and it's not going anywhere because harmonically it's not going anywhere, not because there's some failure in your mix or everything. And I think because there's so many self-taught musicians now these days, the advice everyone gives falls back to mix advice because no one knows how to articulate, including myself, especially in writing on like Facebook comments or Instagram comments. No one really knows how to articulate it. And also you're talking to someone who might not understand what you're saying, even if you could articulate it. So the conversations become around, man, yeah, try making like the bass hit a bit more, maybe give it a notch in the so-and-so or try and do this with the snare and do that. And I'm like, all good advice, but 
the thing they really need to do is go back to the basics of composition and go get your chord sequences sorted and then worry about all the other surrounding confetti and stuff because you're just trying to kind of jazz up something that's not there. It's just not there as an idea. Yeah, it's kind of like a... I know there is a, an international audience for this, but it's kind of like a purse out of a sales ear, I think is the phrase that we use in the <laughs> Southwest a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you can like you can make amazing tracks out of three chords. And, and especially, if, especially if like, and again, that goes back to the knowing the rules to break the rules thing. If you're like, I am knowingly making a three chord loop where I'm really going to find this really brilliant three chord hook that I'm just going to really like, I really know how to build on this. And I mean, you know, dance music does that so well. Um, but yeah, to answer your question about sometimes it is just knowing when to just leave it and go, just leave that. I'm going to go mad trying to fix that in this one session, trying to figure out what's next. Sometimes it's going, having the discipline, as Robert De Niro was saying, heat, to walk away from like, the idea, <laughs> have film. the discipline to walk away. Um, and sometimes it's about actually just going, do you know what? Just keep fucking powering through and break the back of this and do not resist the temptation to start noodling around with drums and fucking other sounds, hoping that's going to save you. Just do the fucking hard work because then the fun can begin. Once you've got that structure down, there's nothing more satisfying for me as going, there's my verse, there's my pre-chorus, there's the chorus, there's verse two, pre-two, chorus, middle eight, final chorus, and I've got all the chord sequences down and the bass is down. And now I can start looking at how I can, what other things I can add into that to make that interesting. But no, sit back going, the heart, the horrible part is over with. The hard part is the, is the chord sequence and the bass line. That's how I was thinking. I was like, until I've got that chord sequence nailed, I can't, I can't like, I don't know. But I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be easier on myself lately. I'm trying to go easier and just, just, just live with doing three chord wonders. And I think that's great advice though. I love the idea of just, getting the chords that I'm powering through because it's something I'm guilty of and I'm sure the audience listening is as well we get to a point where I'm like it's not it's probably not because the song's not working it's just because I'm just not I, I give up too easy maybe but I think you're right I think you just got power through sometimes and get those chords and those bass down and 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 also singing along is underrated as a as a means to help you coming up with those chord sequences so even if you don't you're not a singer uh, or you're not planning to be the voice on the record, or you know that if you get somebody else to sing on it, you know that their top line is not going to sound like yours, or you're not planning to tell them what to sing. But the amount of times I'm sitting at a piano going, I got a nothing, I got a <laughs> because that can sort of help you go, well, if the melody were doing that, where would that now go? If it's like, like that, even if that's not what ends up being it, I like that. It's having a sort of some sort of melodic roadmap in your head. Otherwise, you're just flying completely blind with no sense of what this could sound like. So it's always worth just kind of making up your own top line, even if it's just going to help you stay in the moment and go, okay, well, where would this go? This like that. And I'm scatting a load of shit, you know. And sometimes I will, if I work with a singer, I might go, this is sort of what I had in mind. And I might send them a guide track and it's me like going, oh, baby. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. <laughs> 
no <laughs> i bet you can make a whole album off of that there's probably like all these artists somewhere they could pull it pull it all together and have this sunglasses kid scatting album exactly i'd love to hear that this this kind of moves <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware of time here we're almost at the hour but i, I kind of want to get this question in there and um, so you mentioned there about working with artists and sending um tracks across um and and top lining so one of your um one of my favorite tracks of yours is your collaboration with ollie ride which is strange love which is um i think it's got what two million plus views on youtube now on new retro wave um i think so yeah yeah, yeah and big on spotify as well so um just a bit of a, a story behind that collaboration and how that started yeah so i i i heard ollie singing on fm84's running in the night i actually heard it in weird context was on a boat in Amsterdam and heard his voice and was like, funny, oh, this is a good song. And, uh, and, um, and I reached out to Ollie over the course of the next year via DMS and bugging him in all kinds of ways and saying, we, you know, I'd love to do something with you with and sending him kind of different ideas and things, mainly kind of upbeat, funky stuff. And then, um, we actually met and I, I met him backstage at a show he was doing in London. And then, um, in the end, I kind of, we, we kind of, for various reasons, we didn't progress the conversation around collaborating together. But what I had been doing a lot of was just posting little ideas that I was having musical ideas on social media, particularly like Instagram. And I had just come up with, and it's such an about face way of doing it, but it's an interesting inspiration story, I suppose, in that I was literally getting really into posting visuals from random like 80s movies. And I almost had found like this really random, like Jennifer Connolly movie from like 1985 that I just loved the visuals. So I like cut together this little minute video and almost went, I kind of, this needs some sort of, I know to quickly write a piece of music just to have an excuse to share this Jennifer Connolly video. <laughs> and so I just came up with this three chord and it was almost like an experiment in how quickly can I write a synthwave esque piece of music. So I quickly wrote these these three chords and put uh, like a arpeggiating Korg Poly Six bass under it, bit of sidechain compression, and a few bells. And I had a tape um, saturation emulator called Satin that could do some pitch warping stuff. Warped a few of the bells to make it sound a little bit retro. Posted it, and Ollie commented on it, going, oh, "I like this. We should do something with this." And I was like messaging going, do you, are you serious? Cause right now it is literally, that is it is that three chord loop. And he was, he was all about like less is more. And he's, we, we then kind of worked on it together in the, 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 the one section we couldn't quite, it was a one moment where we had a, not a disagreement, but a little bit of a discussion about how it should sound was we'd come up with a middle eight section and I'd come up with this chords variation that, Ollie sang over and he was doing something completely different to what's in the final track. He was doing this very like chilled out kind of, he was always doing these little la-las. He was like, ha, ha, stranger love. And I was like, no, I was like, no, you're Ollie Ryder. We need the fucking big, like, we need a massive thing. And um, he was like, okay, well, I'm not sure the chord sequence is working. Do you mind if I kind of have a muck about with it? And he slightly rearranged the chord sequence so actually the middle eight section is is kind of truly co-written by me and ollie because he actually inputted on the chord sequence and i was like fine because then you did a top line that is the top line that you hear on the track and i was like well if it gets us there that's what i wanted the result to be was this massive epic crescendo leading us into the final chorus not some timid kind of lull in, in, in energy which it was at the time 
And so he then I then brought that chord sequence back into Cubase on my end and we worked on it. And it was probably the most collaborative I've ever been with someone in terms of us backing and forthing and sharing ideas. Cause usually I give the track away to a singer, sit back, cross my fingers and hope they come back with something good and don't, I'm very unprescriptive. I'm not a fan of telling people what to do. I think it, it, it it's telling them how to write and what to do. And it's very limiting for them and annoying and, unless you're going to kind of prescribe it exactly and hire them out like a session singer and pay them a flat rate fee. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how it came about. And I think, I think at the time it was the one time where I thought, I'm not saying that it's a hit, but it was the one time where I had the sense of this is, this is good. Right. We were like, this is quite good, isn't it? We're like, I don't know if anyone's going to like this like that much, but we we're like, it's quite catchy, isn't it? And I remember playing it to my mom and saying, this is this is the one, isn't it? I'm like, if I've got a, if I've made a track that's like any good, this one's pretty cool. And my mum, who's you know incredibly high like uh, standards, she was like, I yes, I really like this one. This one, this one's the one. Um, and so like it, yeah, it was. But what's interesting about that is that that was that is largely a three chord wonder with some slight variations in it. But it was, I think, that was my lesson in kind of going, you know, sometimes simpler is better and i think i often make things too busy and don't leave enough room for vocalists and that's something i'm always trying to kind of get better at doing but that sort of echoes is there's an episode i did a few few weeks ago which was pretty much exactly that which was it was a reflection on a song that i released and my reflection was that sometimes less is more um and that I, it was the composition was just too there was too much going on and it was a it was a pig to mix purely because i just tried to cram so much stuff in there and sometimes it is a case of specifically with the vocals as well like just just stripping it back and it's an approach that i'm going to take going forward so i think that's really good for the audience to hear um is is, is that and i know from that episode that previous one i've had uh, a few people mention that exactly that to me and they, they've been sort of like i released this track i took the approach of less is more and i'm like it sounds great um, so it's it's really cool to hear, and it is a banging track as well, man. And the hats off to you. It's so good, so so good. On well, thank you. I mean, on the other hand, I'm also throw everything at a fucking track. I put in as many cowbells <laughs> and orchestral hits and slap bass and stupid shit as I can, and funky plucks and things like that, and that has its place as well. But I think I think definitely if you are com- if you are very confident, you want a vocal on something. I think there is a lot to be said for being sure you carve out the space for that vocal. And, and I think, I think it's more appealing to, to vocalists and the amount of times if I've sent an instrumental over that has an, has a melody on it, even if in your head, it's a counter melody. So in your head, you've got, you're envisaging a top line running over this thing and the melody you've got going on is like, would be a counter melody or something the amount of times a vocalist will latch onto that melody and, and start kind of using that as a guide and coming back with a top line that's like just copying that melody. So actually sometimes not having too many melodic things happening in a track can kind of give people space. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of balancing act between presenting someone, some, I, I'm often presenting someone saying right now it's kind of, this is half the track, there, there'll be more stuff we'll add on, but I feel now we need to get your vocal in work out what that's happening with the top line and then maybe put decoration around it, depending on what's going on with that top line afterwards. 
So sometimes you've got to kind of back and forth a bit with the singer. I like that idea of carving out space for the vocal. And I think you're exactly right there. Um, and I think it's something the audience can take away in, in, in their own productions, which is amazing. Um, Ed, I'm, re- I'm well aware. We're well over an hour now. So um, I've, I've got... I talk for England. No, I told you to control me. No, no, it's great. <laughs> I mean, well, I've got one, two questions. One of them is, you mentioned there about the bass line, the funky bass line. I've seen some of your your... your well, I've listened to your music and I've seen the, the shorts that you put on, on reels, etc. What are you using to create those slap basses? What VST? <laughs> it sounds so good. Um, I mean, depends which which sound you're referring to. I mean, a lot of the bass, a lot of the bass on my foot on graduation and quite a bit of um, can't uh, hide sophomore. That's the one I'm thinking of. And, and, and can't can't hide. Yeah, can't. So can't hide is. The Korg Poly Six. Ah. So it's the same. It's the same. I'll, I'll, I'll even give everyone the exact preset because it's so. It's so. It's so like um, synonymous with synthwave. Everyone's a lot of people were using it, but not in the way I use it. So it's the. It's literally the preset is called Fat Line Bass. Okay. And it's this really like chorusy kind of bass preset, and then the trick is to short is to make is get the the length just right. So it's making it very um, fast attack and short um, release. And um, so it's playing it quite, it's playing it in a very percussive way. And then you can, you can either like layer another slap bass sound, which slap basses I'm getting from like Korg M1, Korg Triton, Triton VST or wave station, wave stations all over my first album. Um, and you can either, you could either literally like have literally an exact layer copy of the melody, but on a slap bass going over it, or you could do choice slaps, like every, like just accent slaps. But what I'm doing with the slap bass is I'm carving out all the low end. So you've just got the top end slap information. So if you just solo the slap bass, it's like, it doesn't sound like a bass. Once it's laid over that percussive poly six stabbing bass sound especially if you're doing choice accents so you have on the bass then on the slap you could like be doing these little choice notes or you could be kind of doing it all so that's how you so it's nothing like just a tiny little spiking on the slap could just create the illusion that there's a slap bass going on somewhere in the yeah. mix and you can dial that in and out levels wise to your kind of taste or whatever and make it either a really big feature or just knock it in every so often yeah that's how i'm doing it fantastic <laughs> all right, right. I, I, I knew there was a core game one in there somewhere at some point and i the, the poly six i'm going to investigate so my, my final question for you this so, so we, there's a podcast community group and i put put it in there that i'm interviewing um and uh and also if anybody had any questions. So uh, there's uh, there's um, one of the listeners called Reese Hayward. He says, um, you enjoy using sounds from both 80s and 90s, but which mm. is your favorite decade for music? I, I love both. I think, oh, probably, oh, God, I really like both of them. Pro- probably the 80s, but but I do like, there's a lot of great songs in the 90s. And I think I think what I like, what I think that's, for people who are like love both eras and are thinking about like how can you kind of fuse the two, the answer lies in around nineteen ninety eight, nineteen eighty nine to about nineteen ninety three, 
you can hear the crossover because it's like this people think that decades when one decade ends suddenly at exactly the end of the decade the <laughs> yeah. new decade comes in the entirely new sound and new fashion everything comes in doesn't work like that so at least for the first three years of the next decade 1990 to 1994 but virtually is still the 80s in terms of the sounds and the ideas and shit so you can hear if you start if you were really interested in studying that kind of how you can fuse those two sounds that's that's the the, the secret source is hidden in like 1990 1991 and then it's about finding those genres that are doing what you lo- you're interested in so going like the one thing i love doing is going back and listening to what jazz musicians were doing in the 80s because some of them are just doing still what sounds like regular jazz but then it's sometimes you'll discover a gold mine being like holy shit miles davis did a load of freak out shit in like 1985 with those drum machines and synths and stuff and you just tap into this unknown like gold mine of wacky things and you can find that in the early 90s as well with different Jonas, or tangented there, but yeah. No, no, I love it. No, um, that's brilliant. Eighties, let's say eighties is best. Yeah, and I, I, I like that idea. Um, I, I, I don't know why I like the idea, but what you mentioned there about like when the eighties ends and the nineties begins, you just this whole thought process that it's a new decade, so everything is new. Um, there's no transition. Yeah, it doesn't work like no, that. No, no. Exactly. You can what you can hear. I guess it's at the end, the end, the beginning of a new decade or the end of an end of a decade is arguably where the most kind of the sounds and ideas are really bedded in. So by like, it's, 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 it's most experimental at the start of the decade as new ideas and things have been explored, but everyone hasn't got too comfortable with it yet. So like 88, 89, the 80s is at its most peak. Every 80s idea is synthesized into kind of pop and it really knows what it's doing as a sound. And then early 90s, as it's trying to introduce and invent new sounds, you've got this weird hinterland of like genres where no one's quite sure what's going on. And that can be a really interesting kind of place to dive into and explore and familiarize yourself with. Food for thought. No, brilliant. Thank you for that. So, um, Ed, Sunglasses Kid, where, where can our audience, if they haven't heard of you, um, which I'm sure they have, uh, where can they find you online? Where's the best place to go? Uh, best place to go is probably Instagram, at Sunglasses Kid Music, um, or you can help me grow my nascent TikTok on also at Sunglasses Kid Music um, or uh, at Twitter, at Sunglasses Kids. But mainly I'm active on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at Sunglasses Kid Music because Sunglasses Kid was taken on TikTok already by someone. And Instagram, I think I might have managed to lock myself out of my own handle. I think I got Sunglasses Kid and then did some major fail and I can't claim it back. So there is actually Sunglasses Kid out on Instagram, but it's just a ghost account that I think I might even own, but will be locked out of it forever. Have you got any key dates or anything coming up that you want to share? I put you on the spot here. I didn't actually prime you for this question. Do you know what? I do not. I don't. I, I'm Right now, I'm focused very much on some sort of behind the scenes stuff, doing some working with other producers, doing a bit of ghostwriting. I am doing some moving and shaking with some people. Um, I will try and get an album out in 2023 because I seem to operate in these three-year cycles. But um, there is nothing imminently on the horizon. I mean, I just dropped an EP and I just dropped a single um, called Tozily, which is kind of more of my kind of 80s, 90s pop, funky, candy fair, or if you want that kind of slower jam, soundtracky, ethereal stuff, my recent EP called um, Nightlife, uh, exploring some late 80s, early 90s kind of ambient, trippy sounds. So you can check that out as well. Love it. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today. It's, Cheers. Uh, it's, it's great. I've been, I've been 
eager to to get you on here for for a while now because I like I said I follow your music and I follow your your posts and stuff you put online and your creative processes. So it's fantastic to to hear and your your thoughts and takes on. I know we didn't get quite through everything we wanted to, but it's one of those ones with the podcast. No one can with me. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, 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 it never I'm happens sorry. with these episodes. Hopefully, to be fair, um, hopefully there's some vague, vague, vague nuggets in there. Maybe you have to have me out, uh, back for part two. No, I would love to. I'd love to have you back. And uh, I know we were chatting off air about you giving demonstrations of how you how you create a track. So I think it'd be fantastic to get you back on and have that. We'll screen see if we can share. nail that tech yeah. to try and figure. We've, we've got the screen, we've got the picture share bit nailed. Yeah, yeah. We just need to figure out the audio share bit. I and think that would be fantastic to do. Absolutely brilliant. Well, yeah, big thank you again, Ed, for joining me today. And I will leave. Cheers, I know it's late now. I'll leave you to enjoy the rest of your evening. Pleasure. Cheers, Cheers you too. Bye. Thank you for listening to our show. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to rate our show on Apple Podcasts. Just a friendly reminder before you go, don't miss out on your free Test Master at Synth Music Mastering. Imagine enhancing your music with my dedicated commitment to quality and that personalised touch. And guess what? It's absolutely free of charge. To claim your free Test Master now at synthmusicmastering.com or click on the link in the episode description.